Uh, and and that's, that's just mind blowing. It is 2020. You know, it, just like you have electricity that flows into your home, you should have access to, to broadband and the internet that flows into your home as well. It's 2020. I'm Essence Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every other week, we interview one person to get their perspective on structural inequality, and today I'm joined by Jamie Harrison, a candidate for U.S. Senate in South Carolina. Hey, I hope you're doing well and staying safe. Maybe if you find it within yourself to do so, you're protesting police brutality or amplifying the voices of those who are. I hope you're doing something because a revolution in policing needs to happen and our nation needs to be on the right side of it. My guest today is Jamie Harrison. He's going to talk to us about these protests as well as health inequities in South Carolina, among other topics. He's the Democratic nominee for the Senate seat in South Carolina, and he's looking to unseat Lindsey Graham. And according to many recent polls, he may just pull it off this November. I really like this interview. I think it will speak to many of us who are looking for ways to get involved and help the black community in America right now. The issue of police brutality is particularly important to me as a civil rights lawyer, as someone who's worked in law enforcement, as a person of color, and most importantly, as an ally to my black brothers and sisters. I've spent the last decade working to reform, educate, and oversee law enforcement on many levels. And these protests are a long time coming because even though the vast majority of law enforcement officers are upstanding, uh, obviously the work I and many others have done in terms of training is not enough. If you haven't already, I invite you to go to Unfair Nation and subscribe to our newsletter where I share what I think a possible solution to this crisis may be, as well as how you can think about ways to help. A number of my friends have asked me what they can do. I don't really have clear answers, but I do have a framework that I use in situations like this. I ask myself two questions. The first question is, what is my best use? The second question is, what are the resources that I can bring to bear to help my community? I asked myself a similar question right after 9-11 about my best use. For me, it led to a career in civil rights, in education, and in advocacy. I felt that that was my best use given my talents and my skills. When I was younger, my answer to the second question about resources was time. Today, it's more like money, less about time. Some of us may have the luxury of money. Some of us may have the luxury of time. Others may have the luxury of risk. Those who feel comfortable with risk, especially the physical kind, and this is a reality with current law enforcement, risk like potential arrest or risk that comes with other forms of public protest, they may find that protesting is their best use and time is the best resource they can bring to bear. Those who feel they can't protest for whatever reason may find that donating, writing, or amplifying others' voices, those of the marginalized in particular, 
is their best use, and money is the resource that they can bring to bear. I think what people can't do is do nothing. Talmud has a beautiful phrase that helps bring both the first question and the second question together for me. And it goes something like this, quote, Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. I don't know if this is helpful, but thinking about my role within this context of resources and best use helps me structure a response and avoid the frustration that often comes with feeling helpless and the guilt that sometimes comes feeling like you're not doing enough. If you're a new listener, I hope you'll subscribe to our podcast and rate us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks, as always, for listening. And now let's go listen to Jamie. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. You're coming in perfectly. That's good, because I spent a lot of money on this mic. So uh, <laughs> I better be coming in good. <laughs> hey, Jamie, uh, listen, thanks for, for taking the time to chat. I appreciate you, uh, you, you doing that. I know you're, you're busy in the middle of a campaign and, uh, probably dealing with a lot of other stuff with COVID and, and now with, uh, these righteous protests we're seeing around the country, you're going to be talking for most of this podcast, I hope, but, uh, I did want to share a personal story of mine, because I think it's similar to a story about you that I read. And that's apparently we used to hustle when we were younger because we didn't have enough money. Now, your story has to do with cereal and water. Yeah. <laughs> mine has to do with soap. I remember I was a, uh, I grew up uh, poor. I was a refugee and an immigrant. Yep. And, uh, uh, I um, was invited to a birthday party, okay? And I did not know the custom in the United States. When you're invited to a birthday party, you sometimes you open the presents. The, the, the birthday boy or girl opens the presents while everybody else is there. This was unknown to me. And I didn't have enough money to buy a present. And so my mom had said, there's no need to go to this birthday party. We don't have enough money to get you a present for your friend. So I took a box of soap, Irish Spring. Still remember the soap. Wow. I wrapped it up in, um, yeah. I, wrapped, I just used a, um, what's it called, a paper bag, found a bow, wrapped it up, Take it, yep. took it in, put it down, put my name on it and everything. And then, uh, you know, a, f a few hours into the birthday party, they were like, let's open the gifts. Oh, open. my. Oh, yeah. Mm. Hey, listen. Uh, it's a nice thing to get a nine-year-old. It keeps everybody, you know, clean. It's not objectionable. It's soap. But it was a really embarrassing moment for me, one that I still remember. And when I was reading your story about how you sometimes had to, you know, eat cereal with water, that resonated with me. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, how you how you grew up and what that was like, a little bit about your background? Yeah. Yeah. You know, wow, that's a powerful story. And you know, there's, I think there's so many stories like that. Um, that so many people, things that you know, we're now adults, right? Fully functioning adults uh, mm -hmm. with uh, 
you know, families and all. And, and those are some of the moments that really define who we are and how we look at the world. And, and, uh, you know, I, I grew up in rural South Carolina, a small town called Orangeburg. Um, and, uh, my mom was 16, um, when she had me and she dropped out of high school and we stayed with my grandparents. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, my grandparents didn't have much education. My grandmother had an eighth grade education. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, she quit school to pick cotton and then she did domestic work. And then my grandfather had a fourth grade education. He quit school. Mm. worked at a dairy and then he did construction most of his life. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of hard times, you know, they, they barely made enough to make ends meet. And there were times in which, you know, my grandfather went on unemployment. We lost our house and, uh, we're staying on, on the couches and the spare bedrooms of family members and, 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 and friends. And so, um, but you know, all despite all of that, uh, it was uh, the, the the unity of our family, our, our faith, uh, and and their character just to to continue to push and work hard. It really got us through all of those things. Um, and you know, I, I ended up becoming the first in my family to go to college. Um, and then I went to law school. But I mean, it the deck was definitely stacked against us. Um, it, it was. Um, it was not easy, but you know, I, I'm, I feel so blessed because, because I had a loving and supportive family and, and incredible mentors, uh, who, who in essence did so much to make me into the person that I am today. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I, I remember moments of digging in couch cushions, trying to find, you know, oh, yeah. change that has fallen out of people's pockets so that my grandfather could just get a gallon of gas to go to work or back. Oh. Or you know, doing homework in the dark because mm-hmm. uh, the the lights were off. And, you know, in South Carolina during the summer, that's a bad time to, to not have uh, lights off. Yeah. But you know, there's some of the places we lived that had no air conditioning either. So um, you know, you, you play out in the yard as much as you can, and uh, because it's definitely cooler than being in the, being in the house. So um, uh, it, it was rough times. Yeah. 30 years later now that, uh, or give or take, now that you are thinking from a policy perspective about these issues as a leader, have things changed? Have things gotten better for somebody living in, in Orangeburg now or other parts of the state? You know, I, um, things have changed for some, but for, for others it's gotten worse. Uh, you know, some of those small, and it's part of the reason why I'm in this, in this race for the United States Senate. Um, because I've seen, a, a, I mean, a regression in, in some of these communities. Things are just not where they need to be in 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, when you still have people here in, in, in South Carolina, in, in the you know, most powerful nation you know, on, on the globe, right? Mm-hmm. And they still don't have running water in their homes. Um, when, you know, folks are still using outhouses. Um, um, that's problematic. That is extremely problematic. And, uh, you know, we got communities where there is no fresh food, where they have to drive 15 and 20 miles to, to get to the nearest grocery store. That's problematic. Um, we have a community, uh, you know, almost a third of our communities here in South Carolina, uh, don't have 
access to quality broadband or any broadband at all. Um, you know, there, there's some speeds uh, of, and in some areas that have broadband, the speeds are uh, probably worse than places like Cuba and, and Venezuela. Um, again, this is the United States of America. There's so much more that we can do, particularly I want to make sure that my story, that your story is not some rarity that happens every right. you know, 25,000, 30,000 kids. You know, our stories, uh, you know, part of what makes America so special is that, you know, folks can grow up on, doesn't matter what's out of the tracks or what the ethnicity or religion and all, and they can still grow up and, and live their dreams uh, and, 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 and see and touch and feel the American dream. That needs to be the norm instead of the exception. Um, and that's, that's why I'm, I'm in this race for the United States Senate, because I see that becoming more of the exception instead of the norm. Right. Um, and in order to change that, you got to have the right type of leadership, someone who can appreciate and understand, uh, the hardships and then come up with policies that make sense, uh, to address those hardships. Yeah. So let me, let me dig a little deeper on that, right? You said that the American dream to give it the more colloquial name is becoming more of an exception. I mean, can you talk about that more? Because there are sectors in our country, folks, uh, who will disagree, right? Who will say that the American dream is alive and well, just, uh, just look at Shark Tank, you know, or, you know, just look at, you know, <laughs> people come on all the time to, you know, sell uh, <laughs> pocket protectors and they make millions. Yeah. What's your response to that? I mean, uh, the, the numbers tend to tell a different story, right? Well, uh, my response is let me, let me take you on a tour of the American South. Let me take you on a tour of some communities here in, in South Carolina where people are, are drinking water that is as brown as the shoes that I have on. Um, let me take you into communities where the infrastructure is falling apart, where kids don't have the, the sufficient technology in their schools, where there's still holes that have been in the ceilings of, of these schools that were there, not only when, when uh, they're there now, but they were there when the kids' parents were or members of the schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many um, things that are not right um, and are not fair. Uh, and as a result, we are constantly saying, well, we want our kids to, to be the best and, and to do the best. We, we need our kids to compete with the rest of the world. But how can they compete with the rest of the world when they can't even connect with the rest of the world? Mm -hmm. How can they compete with the rest of the world when the materials that they have are from a different generation. And that's what we're teaching them to, to use in terms of, you know, the globe has changed so much, you know, countries now have different names, but yet you still have kids that are working off of things um, that were at their schools when, when Reagan and Carter were presidents, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's the state of play in, in some of America and in a lot of America that doesn't get the, the limelight, you know, the, that doesn't mm -hmm. get uh, the spotlight. I had one reporter when we had the presidential primary here in South Carolina, one reporter who was here and he said, you know, Jamie, one of the things I wanted to do was, you know, we all came to Charleston and that's where the debate was. And that's where everybody was huddled. That's where all of the tourism is. And he said, Jamie, I wanted to get outside and see some of the communities where you grew up. 
And he said he just drove around the, the, the uh, I-26, I-95 quarter. It's an area that has gotten the moniker of quarter of shame. This is an area where you see the highest, uh, where the quality of water is horrible, where, you know, there's a lot of environmental uh, uh, justice issues, where schools are falling apart, uh, where, you know, rural hospitals have closed, um, where people have still outhouses. Uh, and he said, he, he came back and he said to me, he said, you know, I've never seen that level of poverty in my life. Yeah. But, you know, that poverty exists here in America. Mm -hmm. It exists here in America, but many of us have turned a blind eye to it. And it's about time that we get someone who can go to Washington, D.C. and focus on that. We are working right now um, feverishly on on an an agenda specifically targeted to rural communities across this country uh, to address many of these disparities that we see. And, and, you know, and when I talk about rural, I don't just, you know, so for some folks who, you know, live in some, you know, larger cities and all think, uh, automatically think when you say rural, it means or equates to, you're just talking about white communities. That's not the case. Rural America is probably just as diverse as urban America. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have some unique challenges in those communities. And, and those are the things that I really want to focus on. Can we focus on one of those challenges? Um, that's a little relevant to what's going on. I mean, there's so much going on right now as we're speaking, but one of the problems we're dealing with obviously is the COVID pandemic. Right. Um, and South Carolina in particular, the rural parts of the state that you're talking about have some of the highest rates of uh, infection from the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Why yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, if you look at it, if you look at just kind of rural population, if somebody who doesn't, you know, spend their time thinking about the COVID pandemic or how to help populations looks at this problem, they'll say, oh, well, yeah. the population density is low. Uh, travel in and out of these communities is low. Why is the rate so high? Yeah. Well, and, and to give some broader context so folks understand how this is ha, has a mm-hmm. huge impact, particularly in the African-American community here in South Carolina. You know, African-Americans make up 27% of the population here in South Carolina, but they account for 52% of the coronavirus-related deaths in the state. Um, so a disproportionate impact. And, you know, there's some, some underlying reasons for that. I mean, first, uh, black Americans are at high risk for things like blood pressure, high blood pressure and diabetes, uh, you know, complications in terms of respiratory systems. Uh, And then you also have that most African Americans here in South Carolina don't have access to quality and affordable health care. Kaiser has said that, uh, Kaiser Foundation said that almost 13% of uh, non-elderly black residents of of South Carolina are unsure. Uh, and on top of that, many of these folks live in these rural communities that we talk about, and we've had four of our full-service rural hospitals that have closed in the state uh, over the past eight years. Yeah. Um, and then and then you add to the fact that many of these folks work in jobs uh, which don't allow them to really become uh, socially distant, right? Um, uh, that right. many of them can't don't have the luxury of working from home 
and they actually work in the service industry. So at the grocery stores and, and the gas stations and, um, you know, some work in, you know, at hospitals in terms of custodial staff and cleaning up. And so, yeah, you, you're exposing your, yourself because you have to, you, you don't have a choice to. Um, and so, you know, you get one of these folks who come into, you know, who get exposed to the coronavirus and they come to community and then everybody goes to the church and, and they go to community events. And before you know it, um, you have this explosion across, uh, this very, very small, very small towns. Um, and, uh, and, and it can be dramatic. I mean, it, and then, you know, and then they're told, uh, well, don't worry about it. There's telehealth. Right, you can get access yeah, to healthcare. Yeah, exactly right. It's so much cheaper. Don't worry about it. This is how we'll solve this problem. But there's a problem in solving that problem, right? And that is that uh, broadband access, <laughs> which is what's required for telehealth, yeah. is also an issue with rural South Carolina. That's exactly right. Thirty-eight percent of rural households in South Carolina cannot access broadband. Um, oh. and, and that's that's just mind blowing. Yeah, it astounding. is twenty twenty. You know, it, just like you have electricity that flows into your home, you should have access to, to broadband and the internet that flows into your home as well. It's 2020, mm-hmm. but but you know that's a huge problem here, and and the you know that lack of reliable broadband impacts two important aspects of the life of folks in South Carolina: education and healthcare. I spoke with the head of the hospital association here mm-hmm. and I asked him, I said, you know, because I'm very concerned with these rural hospitals closing. We've had four to close and a few others that are on the bubble right now. And I asked him, I said, well, why are they closing? What, what's causing this all of a sudden? Mm-hmm. And he said, Jamie, there are two things. Well, before you One, get to the two things, because South- Jamie, oh, oh, yeah. you should also listen to my last episode where I talk about hospitals closing. This is a promo for my own podcast on my own podcast. <laughs> yeah i'm never gonna you're not the only politician on this podcast so but now go ahead yeah tell me the two reasons i'd love to hear well well he said you know the two things were that uh one south carolina refused to expand medicaid uh mm. and, and you know we're if you look at rural hospital closures across america uh, and then you look at the states that have refused to expand Medicaid. It's almost like a hand in glove, right. almost a perfect, perfect fit. And part of that, as you know, as you know, working in the administration, that uh, as the Affordable Care Act was was being constructed, uh, before the ACA, there was re- there were resources that flowed to hospitals that were disproportionately. Uh, working with indigent uh, you know, you know, communities, uh, low-income communities, mm-hmm. and they received funds from the federal government. Well, when they constructed the ACA, the thought was that, well, then those communities that are targeted will receive funding through the Medicaid expansion. And so they redirected some of those funds to pay for uh, the Medicaid yeah. expansion. Well, then when the Supreme Court decided to, to gut the ACA and, and, and get rid of the, the mandate that states had to expand the Medicaid. And it gave these states the opportunity to say no to Medicaid expansion. Those funds that used to go to those hospitals stopped. They no longer went. Mm-hmm. And couple, you know, it's sort of double whammy. They're also not getting the Medicaid expansion because the leaders in 
primarily Republican leaders, I mean, almost entirely Republican leaders, have decided that, you know, they weren't going to expand Medicaid. So it's been a – and, you know, the, the third thing, those populations that were still going to the hospitals for their health care because they didn't have any other access to health care, going to the emergency rooms, are still going. Yep. And so, uh, you know, these, these hospitals that are already operating off of slim margins are, yeah. are being impacted even more. And then you add on the fact of telehealth. You know, the, that's the second thing that the, the head of the hospital association told me. He said, Jamie, so much of what we do now is in the telehealth space. And when we cannot do that because of lack of broadband access, it cripples uh, our operations. And, and it's, you know, we, we see that double whammy that is, is taking place right now and really hurting our hospitals across the country. Yeah, and I mean, the emergency room situation is particularly problematic because in many cases, folks that can't afford medical care, the only place they can get medical care is an emergency room because they can't be turned away. That's exactly right. Which makes things even worse. And then they also, because they can't afford medical care, they wait until things become an emergency. Yes. Yep. And I really do believe, and I have not seen any articles on this, I believe that that is part of the reason why you are seeing, particularly in communities of color, uh, a greater impact in terms of coronavirus. Because I, you know, I sit back and I remember my grandfather. So my grandfather never had health care while he worked because all of his jobs, even though he worked construction, he worked 50 plus hours a week, his jobs didn't provide any, any health care benefits. Right. And so he ended up, uh, getting diabetes, but it was undiagnosed. Uh, and so it was too late when he, he found out about it and eventually he had to get amputations. Part of his leg uh, got amputated and toes got amputated off of one, one foot. And so, um, but my grandfather was one who never went to the doctor. Even when he was in pain, he always felt, well, I'll, I'll get through it. You know, I'll go get some over-the-counter things for the pain or this and that. And you see that in these communities that don't have access to, to health care or can't afford their health care costs. And I, I really believe that probably part of what's going on with the coronavirus is just that, that, you know, these communities are so used to sort of, you know, waiting it out, right, when it comes to health care, yeah. uh, you know, absorbing the pain. Um, because they they can't afford it, and so therefore they don't go get diagnosed in, in a timely fashion, mm-hmm. uh, and and when until things get too late, um, and and I think that that's probably part of what we're seeing right now. Yeah, it creates a culture too, right? It's in the communities that I come from too. It creates a culture of like you know you just yep. handle it yourself, you figure it out. Yeah, so it's not a real thing. It's just a cold. So that's exactly right. So, so, you know, some of the things I want to tie what we've been talking about to what's happening right now. Okay. So we talk about healthcare, we talking about vulnerable communities, lack of broadband access, poverty. I know that a lot of the people that are protesting, they're protesting at the core about long-term structural institutional discrimination, racism, so on and so forth. But a lot of it is also some of the stuff you and I have just talked about. Can you talk a little bit about how you have been feeling about the protests that have been happening over the last four or five days, particularly as somebody in South America, oh, sorry, South America, 
uh, South Carolina, rather. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's protests there too. There are protests everywhere. And yeah. um, as somebody who's, you know, black and identifies with this community and somebody who's grown up with some of the other underlying issues that communities of color, particularly the African-American community, have been dealing with for a long, long time. Yeah. You know, man, my, my heart's so heavy right now. Um, are you not tired? And, and when I tell someone... Are, are you tired? I am tired. You're tired. Me too. I, I am tired. You know, it, it, it is... You know, it, it's a weight that I've carried my entire life, but it's a weight that a, an entire community is carrying, mm-hmm. right? For generations. Yeah. And as I, I told one of my friends, I said, I said, you know, just imagine that you wake up every day and you think, will today be the day? Will it be the day that I or a loved one is shot, killed, harassed? discriminated against uh, because of something that you can't control, right? You are just being you. Um, so I, I, I know, I know the pain that, that folks are expressing, you know, across this country. Um, and, and we as a nation have to stand up and address that pain. You know, folks want to be seen. Folks want to be heard. Folks want to be appreciated. Folks want to be understood. Folks want to know that they actually matter. Um, and I think the nation, you know, we're hearing a community crying out about this. And I think the nation has to answer the call. We've swept this under the rug for far too long. And, um, we, we got to do something. We, we fundamentally have to do something because when justice is not just, uh, we have a problem. You know, this, this, this experiment of America breaks down. Um, and, and, you know, again, we've, we've been able to patch this thing up with bubble gum and, and tape. Um, but, but we, we finally need to step back and fix it. We have to fix it. Um, and, and I believe that we can, I really do believe that. How do we do that? You know, I think, I think Dr. King's admonition that, you know, people of goodwill have to stand up and speak out. Mm -hmm. And I think you're starting to see that you look at these protests and it's just not black folks out there. Right. Mm -hmm. That's part of the start. Uh, I look at Facebook posts of some of my friends who, Normally are not, you know, the civil rights protest folks, but are truly speaking, and not just the black folks, speaking to people in their own communities and saying, this is not right. If you feel this way, this is not right. Uh, and we got to address this. Um, I think we have to, you know, President Obama just came out with a meeting post that was just, I think, was so spot on, and he always is spot on, but it's so spot on, which talked about, uh, you know, it seems like there's this underlying deb- debate that's going on right now about, you know, you know, some folks say, oh, you need to go out vote, and some folks say, oh, no, you need to go out protest. And he basically said it's not an either-or type of thing. It's both. Yeah. 
we we need to acknowledge the injustices, and that's what we do when we go out and protest and, and let folks know the pain, the frustration, and the fear. Uh, at the same time, in order to change that, we've got to understand that you, we have a system for how you change laws, how you change uh, you know, the structural uh, components of this country. Uh, and and the, the gateway to that system is through our vote. Um, uh, you know, when you think about it, you know, when you think about prosecutors and, uh, and who hires police forces, and the, the, you know, the, the people on police teams and, mm-hmm. uh, all of those things are, are impacted by the vote. Either those folks are being directly like, like sheriffs are being directly hired. I mean, uh, elected or they're being appointed by folks who are elected. Um, and, uh, or, you know, when cases go in front of, uh, in, in courtrooms, you know, they're being heard by juries and how do you get selected on a jury It's based on the voting rolls. So, right. you know, many of these things are, are, it's such an interconnection here. Um, uh, and, and we, we can't lose sight of that. Um, that, that we got to do it and got to do it all. Yeah. But let me, let me push back on that a little bit. Right. Uh, lawyer to yeah. lawyer. Nobody likes us until we talk to ourselves. But let me push look, push back a little bit on that, right? I mean, what about the underlying complaint or the underlying thought that, you know, the system in and of itself, right? That, that, that this idea that these protests aren't just about incidents. They're about a system which is oppressive and unyielding and persistent. And the, the idea that a, a, the system itself is unjust and corrupt, right? So you want me to go vote, but the electoral college is tilted against me. You want me to go to court, but the system of justice, I can't even afford an attorney. I mean, what, what, how do you, I, I, I have a feeling that so much of this anger, so much of this passion is not just coming out of one or two incidences, but this oppression that people feel f- oh, yeah. from the system, right? So how how can one both be part of the system, but then also try to reform it? Yeah. Well, listen, this is not a this is not a the first time that we as a community have tackled that question, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's the first. This isn't the first time that we we have, as a community, have felt this injustice. It's not the first time that we have seen people's blood spilled uh, as a result of pushing back on these uh, on this. Um, and so, I think we we have to look back to the past for lessons to how we address the future. Um, and and you know, we have made gains, but there's still so so much that we have to do because. You know, it, and you know when I think about this, it is you know raci- racism and racial injustice in this country has been like a stain on the fabric of, of America that we've never been able to wash out. Um, you know, we've mm-hmm. lightened it up a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's still there. Um, it, it it it's still it's still there, and. I think that this is the moment um, and it is, and, and the, the confluence with, with this election, I think coming up 
to fundamentally do something about it. I really do believe it. Now, what is the path and how we do that? I'm still trying to figure that out myself. And I don't think anybody has the, the answer. Um, I mean, uh, and, and, and so I, I just, I, you know, the one thing I, I live with is what my grandma always told us. She said, she said, Jamie, in life, you, you have to control what you can control. Do what you can do in order to make things better. Um, and if other people are doing those things, then as a, as a community, things will get better. And so, you know, for some of us, we aren't, you know, aren't elected officials or in power. And so for some of us, it means going out and protesting. That, that means going out and, and letting it be known that we are in pain, that we are hurting, that we need changes. Um, but for some of us who are in those positions and of power to make those modifications, it's about making sure that we're pushing them to do that as well. Um, and that, you know, I think particularly when the good people stand up and not be silent, mm -hmm. not to just, you know, turn their eye to, to the injustices that are happening. Um, you know, things, things will modify and things will get better and things will change. And that could mean that we decide as a community that the whole structure or the parts of the structure need to fundamentally change, need to be thrown away and rebuilt. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's, that's part of it. But, well, so that's, um, uh, that's kind of what people, so there is this division, right? Between the people that are protesting and part of it is saying, part of the folks are saying, look, we need a fundamental revolution in how these things work, mm -hmm. particularly in how law enforcement treats African-Americans and people of color. But some people are saying, yeah, you just need to have more trainings and things like that. And, you know, we'll make things better. And the folks that tend to believe that there needs to be a revolution are also the folks that tend to believe that a little bit of property damage and anger and fires and, you know, this needs to happen. People need to get shaken up. And maybe some of the folks... You know, as a civil rights lawyer, I shouldn't be stereotyping, but I'm really stereotyping here. But some of the folks on the other side might be saying things like, look, no, look, MLK's peaceful protest worked. Uh, you know, in other countries, like somebody like Gandhi, this, this stuff works. It, it's a lot more effort, requires a lot more patience. Uh, but mm -hmm. th this is the system that has worked for, for many people and us in the past, and we should continue. So what do you think about that kind of div dichotomy of people saying, I'm just so angry. This has been happening for so long uh, that, you know, maybe anger is the way out. Maybe a little bit of violence or, you know, maybe not. There's been no real violence against individuals per se, but property damage and things like that. Maybe that's the way out. Maybe peaceful protests aren't the way. Well, when we look at the property damage and all, you know, I don't believe it's uh, the source of that is coming no. um, from folks who yeah. aren't really engaged in right. changing the process. Yeah, you're certainly right about These that. These are outsiders who are, yeah, who are, are trying to foment more problems rather than to try to address the, the problems that we have. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I sort of, you know, dismiss that, that, that component because I, I just think that, you know, most people that I know, they don't want to destroy anybody's stuff, but they, they want folks to hear them. Uh, they want folks to, to see them, they they want to be heard, and they want they want to matter matter to people. 
Um, you know, that's what this is all about. And, and, and nobody's asking for more than, than what they should, what we all deserve as Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, to be treated, you know, like anybody else. Uh, you know, I, I'm not asking for much more than, or more than anybody else. I just want, you know, when I drive my car, not to be pulled over because of the color of my skin um, and to be treated differently. Mm-hmm. But we constantly see that taking place uh, across the country. And that is part of the frustration. That is part of the, 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 uh, the anger that that's there. Um, that that it's, it's just so much more difficult. Why should it be more difficult for me to go get a loan? just because I'm black, you know, why, why should I be treated differently on my job mm-hmm. because of the color of my skin? Um, and 60 years later, and, and it's partly because we haven't fully addressed this stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, we came out of the civil rights, uh, efforts and we felt because we changed the laws, we, but the problem is some of the hearts didn't change. And it's not like you can mandate heart change, right? But I think culturally, we got to, we got to make it untenable for folks to to harbor and bring those uh, those biases into the society that we are trying to build. Let them know, give, make them feel uncomfortable to to express that and, and to and to demonstrate that, and make them feel like they are the outsider because that that's how we we affect change. That's how we, uh, we, we dig this thing out. And there's a challenge there too, right? When you do that, when you make people yeah. feel uncomfortable to, 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 cause that's the only way you're going to change, right? If you're going to work out and you're going to lift weights, you're going to become a little uncomfortable. You're going to get a little sore. So when you try to do that yeah. with, with uh, communities in power, different communities, primarily the white community, you get pushback, right? Um, and if, if you are already, disempowered in some way that's a challenging place to be that creates resentment you know people saying look like you said i'm just asking for basic dignity and now i have to deal with not only asking for that dignity but getting pushed back on getting lied about getting you know whatever it is yeah. uh, maligned and 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 uh reframed anyway that's a lot i mean this is a lot to discuss but yeah Oh, there's so much to discuss. But one of the things that, that makes me, well, what I'm seeing now, that, that I have to, you know, I stand up and I have to applaud folks for it. Is this, you know, there's no tolerance for some of this behavior. We saw what happened to the woman who, who claimed, you know, called the police on an African-American mm-hmm. who Amy was bird watching in New York. Yeah. Amy Cooper. And, and, and she lost her job. And you know what? She deserved to lose. Yes. Because you don't do those type of things. Um, and just here in South Carolina recently, you know, somebody was posting, yeah, you have the freedom, you have the freedom to express yourself, but at the same time, you have to understand that your expression of certain things may have, uh, unintended consequences. We had a young woman here in, in, uh, Columbia just recently that posted a lot of racial, uh, epithets and stuff. And she worked at one of the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? She lost her job. Um, and, and she deserved to do so because yeah. you got people of all different backgrounds, races that, that are spending their hard earned money 
in in your workplace, and they shouldn't have to be subjected to your 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 biases and and, and your discrimination. Yeah. Who's to say that you come and and take my blood and you do something that you shouldn't do or you wouldn't normally do? I don't know, mm-hmm. and and I shouldn't have to pay for that. Um, and so I, I think that's when we and and I'm applauding these companies for standing up and having. Mm-hmm a baseline that said that we will not tolerate that in terms of uh, the culture that we are establishing in, in our places of business. Yeah. And I think it is, we continue down that road and let folks know that there's going to be zero tolerance for discriminatory right. behavior. Yeah, you're right um, about that. I mean, you know, this wouldn't for, have happened 20 years ago. Forcing to change. Yeah. I mean, exactly the, right. It didn't happen. Right. I can't even foresee this. I didn't even see people that look like me in commercials 20 years ago. So there have been a lot of, Yep. Uh, you know, silver linings that have come out of stuff like 9-11, um, to, you know, tragedies like 9-11 and even what we're going through now. Hey, let's, Jamie, let's switch gears a, a little bit. Now you're Senator Harrison. Okay. Congratulations. What's, what's going on the <laughs> first, uh, <laughs> if only I had that much power. What's going on in the first uh, couple of months? What's happening in the first uh, couple of months? What are your priorities? What are you looking at? Are they things that arise out of COVID if it's still continuing? Are they trying to address some of the inequities we've discussed with uh, with the black community and law enforcement? Are there rural broadbands issues? What's what, what's on your plate? Well, it, it's an agenda to really tackle some of these inequalities, um, poverty. Uh, looking at education, looking at healthcare, looking at uh, infrastructure and, and environmental justice issues. Um, there's so many needs for my state, um, my beloved state. There's so many things uh, that I can't just say I'm going to concentrate on just one mm-hmm. um, because many times they're all interconnected. It's almost like playing whack-a-mole, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, that's you, right. You think you... you yeah, you think you've addressed one thing, and then all of a sudden, because this thing needs some time and attention, that pops up as well. Uh, and it, it's uh, it's putting your your finger in in, uh, in finger and toes and everything in, in the the many leaks for 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 your ship that's sailing along. And um, and so you know it's a multi pronged multi pronged approach to really address many of these issues that have been. Uh, pervasive for 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 you know, generations, and um, so we're going to start there. You know, how how are we looking at poverty, and particularly in rural communities? How are we addressing the inequalities in education, from uh, funding of under-resourced schools to uh, making sure kids with special needs have the materials and and the, the things that they need, uh, paying teachers. Uh, fairly, um, how do you uh, address you know the burden of student loan debt and on this next generation? Um, uh, you know the healthcare and the, and the inequalities there. And I want to see Medicaid expanded here in South Carolina. I want to see greater access for all that uh, healthcare that is affordable and accessible. Um, and then you know there's fundamental infrastructure that things that we need. We have to have good roads and bridges, but we've got to have broadband. Um, and then, you know, we know we're in the midst of climate change. And so, uh, you know, when we got, we're about to approach hurricane season here in South Carolina mm-hmm. and I'm praying uh, today. that, you know, the Lord's 
yeah, the, the, that uh, we we are spared uh, in this process. How do you deal with uh, hurricane preparedness when you're in the midst of a pandemic, right? Uh, that what happens? Do do some of these programs that you some of these ideas you've mentioned? I mean, are you the kind of uh, leader who uh, you know? Is, is open to and willing to and perhaps even prioritizing partnering with the private sector on some of these issues? Of course. Uh, I think we have to take an all-of-the-above approach um, uh, in terms of looking at partnering with, with private sector, uh, looking at how we utilize or better utilize uh, our nonprofits um, that are in communities and, and actually help them uh, focus and, and come together because, you know, there's you know, a lot of, as someone who has worked, you know, I've had a foot in, in the private sector and I've worked with companies. I've also worked with nonprofits. I've worked in the government. And you know that there's a lot of inefficiencies. There are a lot of duplications that take place. Uh, and I think one of the things that we really need is to figure out how we spend our money better uh, in a more efficient way to get a better bang for our buck and as it relates to the real change that needs to happen on the ground. Uh, so, you know, encouraging and, and using the federal largest to encourage, you know, our nonprofits uh, to come, you know, if you've got similar goals and strategies, you know, how do we get y'all to come together to, you know, to, to, to work together uh, for, for one goal and one purpose or, or, or multi goals and purposes? Uh, and do it in an efficient and effective way. Um, yeah. you know, uh, you know, how can we leverage you know, the private sector to do more? I will pressure the private sector. You know, it's part of the reason why we don't have broadband here in South Carolina is because of members of the private sector. Some of the big telecommunications companies who don't want to go into rural communities and they fight against through, uh, you know, lobbying efforts and whatever, allowing other entities like uh, uh, local co-ops to uh, bring in broadband. So in essence, who gets uh, who gets screwed in this process are the people who live in those communities. Why are they fighting local entities? Uh, because they don't want to lose, they don't want to service hmm. that area, but they also don't want any competition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, I can't have it. Nobody can have it. That, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and I, I, I know a specific companies here in South Carolina that have uh, fought back against local co-ops in the state legislature and lobbied against local co-ops to, to start adopting uh, uh, broadband so that they could expand it into the regions that they're already providing water and electricity, right? So it's another form of uh, and we got to stop that because in the end of the day, it's about the people yeah. and, and what's in the best interest of the people. And, uh, and so, uh, but you know, I, I, I'm going to be that type of center. But it is almost required taking a, pu- a public uh, utility approach to this problem. I think so. I think, I think that's part of, part of looking at it. Uh, and, and hopefully, and even incentivizing, you know, uh, you know, it could be an incentive program where we work with some of the existing companies to expand mm-hmm. into those 
those areas. Mm-hmm. Or if we, if the incentives aren't, aren't good enough, it's incentivizing some of the, you know, public utilities and, and, and public co-ops um, in some of these communities to, to uh, adopt this and, and to, to open it up to allow them to do it. Yeah. And I think like whatever happens there, um, you know, whether it's you who implements it or somebody who, who is inspired by you, I think that uh, it could serve as a model for a number of rural communities in America because we're seeing that be a huge issue now, especially with COVID and telemedicine and telehealth and teleeducation. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, you know, what's so, what's so amazing is Lindsey Graham's been in Washington DC for 20 plus years. This has been a problem in South Carolina for yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. And not until I got in and started talking about broadband. Uh, <laughs> now he, he's talking about it. So we're already seeing change Good. just by running. Yep. Uh, that that he's now talking about an issue that mm-hmm. that he should have been talking about a long time ago. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, just just the run is helping. So so that's amazing. Yeah, I got one last uh, question for you, and that yeah. is, uh, you know, I'm I'm a I'm an educator, amongst other things, and my my students listen to my podcast, but they uh, I know that hearing this, uh, hearing your story, where you've come from, some of the issues you care about. They will uh, want to know more. They'll probably be inspired, some of them, to, to follow in your footsteps. Especially those that are, you know, young men and women of color, uh, yeah. black Americans, uh, people who, you know, will resonate with your identity. What do you have to say to them? I mean, what's what are they, if they're 18 to 24, they're maybe thinking about law school, what do you, what do you tell them? What, you know, maybe they're feeling a little anxious. This is a broad question, but I guess if they want to be like you when they grow yeah. up, what's, what's your, you know, advice to them? Well, you know, one thing is, and when, when I was on the Hill, I used to, uh, I met so often with young men and women, particularly young people of color, um, because they wanted to figure out how to, how you do this how you navigate the hill, how do you do mm-hmm. all of this stuff? How do you get involved in politics? How do you make a difference? And that's the real important thing. How do you make a difference? Yeah, that's the right. first thing I, I always tell them is, you know, follow your passions, figure out what it is that you are really, really passionate about. And I know sometimes it's hard because you see your other friends and they're doing things and you think, huh, should I go to that law firm? Should I do this? Cause my friends, doing this. should I go to you know, the McKinsey or the consultant firm and all that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my charge to all of them is figure out what is it that makes you go? What is it that you get really passionate about? And it could be that passion could be emotion. That could be anger. It could be joy, but it's something that really gets you mm-hmm. going when the topic comes up or, or when you read about it or when you see it and, and figure out then when you find that you figure out then what are the careers that are related to that. And then you go from that point on. And so for me, I always knew that politics was a way uh, to be a voice for the voiceless, a way to change things so that the opportunities that I was able to, to, uh, to take advantage of uh, opportunities I was able to take advantage of um, were out there for other round headed boys and girls uh, growing up across Mm -hmm. the country. And, um, 
And so, you know, I started from my internships and then, you know, exposing my, myself to a lot of different experiences so I could figure out what was the right track for me. Now, I, I actually wrote a book, uh, co-wrote it with a friend of mine called Climbing the Hill, uh, How to Build a Career in Politics and Make a Difference. And it's, it's a great, and I talk about my stories of being, you know, the one African-American in the room when we're debating issues from health care to housing to uh, you know, I talk about stories of passing the Matthew Shepherds and James Bird hate crimes bill. Um, but it, it's a, it's a, it, for, for young people who are looking at getting involved in the policy arena, political arena, uh, it's probably a good book, you know, go to the local library, uh, just to give you a sense of what's out there, the types of internships, the types of programs that they're there. Um, and it gives you good questions to ask yourself about what it is that you really want to do and how you want to do it. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that book in the show notes so that so that people have access to it. Hey, Jamie, listen, thanks for taking the time. I, I know this is a busy time for you and for, for talking to us on the podcast. Appreciate your viewpoints. Wish you the best of luck um, in the upcoming election. Thank you for everything you're doing for South Carolina and hopefully everything you'll do for the country uh, if you're elected. Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Take care now. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Unfair Nation. Shout out to my brother-in-law's mysterious talent for finding me great guests like Jamie. Next up on Unfair Nation, a fantastic interview with Merith Basie. She talks about why drug prices are so high and what we can do to lower them. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you find it interesting, even if you don't, and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We've also got a newsletter which you can subscribe to on unfairnation.com so you can find out when we release our latest episode and join exclusive Ask Me Anythings AMAs with our guests like Jamie. As always, thank you for listening, be safe, and keep fighting for fairness.